0: what you're doing is you're magnifying that something, be it a precious metal or chemical or bacteria or fungi or whatever it is, you're magnifying it in order to inspect it at a level which we simply cannot see with the bare human eye. You're taking something and you're magnifying, blowing it up, a part of it. Well, last week, we considered Christ's royal lineage in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, which established Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, eligible to be the Messiah who would deliver God's people from the curse of sin. And the genealogy heralds the coming of Christ the King to His people. And what I sought to put before you is that Christ's royal lineage shows us God's worldwide gracious and unstoppable purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. Well, today, we are taking the last link of that royal lineage, that royal chain, from verse 16, and we're putting it under a microscope. We're blowing it up. We're magnifying it in order to inspect it. And with God's help, you shall see something utterly amazing, something undeniably supernatural, something exquisitely divine, the virgin birth. You shall behold God come down, the entrance of God the Son into mankind's misery and pain as Savior and as great blessedness to the people of God. In Christ Jesus, of whom Scripture testifies, and Christians confess to be born of the Virgin Mary, God comes to you and He comes to me. So it's not so much us actually putting this under the microscope, but it's, it's Matthew in his Gospel. In verses 18 through 25, he's putting verse 16, the action there, under the microscope for us and for a particular purpose. If you're here this evening in need of encouragement from the Holy Spirit or assurance of the Father's love, then look no further. This is where you shall go. Here in the birth of Christ the Son, the God who hears prayers answers your cry from the depths. He sends His salvation here in this passage. So what I'll seek To put before you this evening from these verses is that through historical drama and supernatural revelation, Christ's virgin birth reveals God's personal involvement in our salvation. Through historical drama and supernatural revelation, Christ's virgin birth reveals God's personal involvement in our salvation. And we'll consider this under three headings, breaking up the text that way. First, we'll consider Mary's drama, which proves we need God's personal involvement in verses 18 and 19. And then Joseph's dream explains God's personal involvement in verses 20 through 23. And then finally, Jesus's delivery confirms God's. Personal involvement. Notice the three D's there drama, dream, and delivery. Those are simply catchwords to help you to remember the structure here. So, first we'll consider Mary's drama, proves we need God's personal involvement. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. The whole passage is introduced here. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The whole purpose of Matthew in these verses is to show us the manner of Jesus Christ's conception, that it was utterly unlike anything at all which had ever happened in the history of man. And Mary here is described not only as his mother, but as one who has been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal in ancient Jewish custom is really the establishing or entering into of a contract, a contract to Mary. Essentially, Mary and Joseph are husband and wife, or I should say Joseph and Mary are husband and wife, but they're not yet experiencing the domestic reality of that. Mary would have still yet been in her father's home, living there, and probably a time of about. Anywhere from 10 to 18 months would elapse, usually about a year, before there would be a great ceremony and Mary would then be brought into Joseph's household. And so that's the situation that we're in. And thus, we understand the drama, don't we? Because before she gets to her husband's household, before she enters into that domestic reality of her marriage, of her betrothal to her husband, she was found to be with child Luke chapter 1 gives us this drama, this situation from Mary's perspective. But here in Matthew chapter 1, judging by the focus and also by the compactness of everything and the action that's taking place, I believe that we're given Joseph's view. Whether or not Joseph was Matthew's direct source is impossible to know. But certainly, the drama that we're seeing here, though it be Mary's drama, is given to us from Joseph's perspective. And when we read these words at the end of verse 18, after describing the situation Mary finds herself in, four words in English, three words in Greek, make all the difference. By the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. This is a divine mystery that Mary is experiencing, isn't it? And not only that, but it's a Trinitarian work. You see, God the Son is entering her womb as as, as, a, as an infant, so to speak, as an embryo. But the Holy Spirit is the one who has brought this to pass. And why? Well, we just sang of it. Due to the Father's Love, Which is implied here in the text, but taking on the heels of the first portion of Matthew chapter 1, we understand that it is the Father's love and purpose to save that brings all of this to pass. Now, this divine mystery, this Trinitarian work, the spiritual realities at play, make this conception no less real. It is as real as all of the conceptions that we've been blessed in this congregation to witness over the past uh, 14 or 15 months or so. And so in that, it's no less real or dramatic than any other conception out of wedlock. Mary faces very difficult drama here, and it's a real situation as we'll see in the next verse. But. Let's not rush through this without first recognizing that because of this situation, because this is the way that God himself got personally involved with all of our drama and the drama of sin, so Jesus can then sing with us the words from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, these precious words. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. See Jesus really Truly experienced every phase of life that we experienced, even at conception, where life does begin. And so he could, and he, if we're singing psalms in heaven, still does, can sing these words with all sincerity. Whenever you think of the birth of Jesus Christ, we then are to meditate on the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in his birth. He it is who formed Christ's flesh in His mother's womb. And He it is who perfectly forms uh, correct thoughts of Jesus Christ, of His incarnation, and of His glorious salvation in our hearts and minds. So the Spirit who conceived this child in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is still at work today conceiving perfect thoughts of this selfsame child, of this Savior, in the hearts and minds of God's people, of God's elect today. Then, moving into verse 19, And Joseph, her husband, because he was a righteous man, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. It's interesting here, we shift from... His mother, Mary, speaking of Mary, to now Joseph, her husband, or her husband, Joseph. There's a shift in focus from uh, Jesus' mother to Mary's husband. And what do we know about Joseph? The text tells us everything that we need to know at this point, that he is a righteous man and he was unwilling to disgrace his wife. Because of these things, because he is these things, he purposes then to divorce her in secret rather than to make a public affair of the situation. The, the English here says, planned to send her away secretly. And truly that word from the Greek translated to send her away is, um, does mean to cast out quite literally. But it's used throughout the Gospels, uh, several Gospels, as the technical term for divorce. And that's what Joseph would have had to do to end this betrothal. It's not just a matter of calling off an engagement, of taking the ring back. He actually had to issue to her a certificate of divorce according to Jewish law, um, infidelity laws in particular in Deuteronomy 22 verses 20 through 25. The text makes a point here that he was righteous and that he was scrupulous. He wanted to keep the law. He wanted to keep it down to the letter, but he was also a compassionate man. He did not want to disgrace her. You see, the law gave him two two options, two potential routes that he could follow after it became clear to him that she was pregnant with a child not his own. He could have immediately grown wrathful and angry and, and considered her an adulteress and called for her to be stoned even in her father's doorway. And we see that, don't we, even in Jesus' day in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees bring an, an, an alleged adulteress to Jesus uh, for judgment that she might be stoned. However, that was only if a young woman uh, was caught in adultery or assumed to have committed willful adultery within the city. There's always much compassion even in God's law as as we consider these kinds of difficult situations. Joseph perhaps assumed that Mary fell under the influence of someone who took advantage of her out of earshot, somewhere where she could not have called for help, and thus she conceived in that kind of situation. Perhaps that was his first thought. And in that case, you wouldn't call for the young woman to be stoned. You would rather divorce her and allow her to move on with her life, and you'd move on with yours. And I think that's what's happening here in uh, in the case with Joseph, that he had no just cause to disgrace her, and he had no desire to do that, and so he designed to divorce her as one who had been defiled against her will. But yet, he did not hastily pursue this divorce. And the beginning of verse 20 suggests to us that he took his time. How unlike us. This man Joseph is really a remarkable man. Examine yourself in contrast to him in this text. Are you as careful and patient as Joseph in laying claim to your lawful rights and privileges? We have rights as Americans, don't we? Well, Joseph had rights that were handed down to him by God himself in the law of Moses. He had some rights, but he's remarkably self-controlled here. He's not even self-interested. There's no indication at all of selfishness in his action. It's just nothing but compassion and tenderness. Thinking the best of Mary and seeking for the best possible outcome for her. There's no record of an outburst of anger. Surely he was shocked by her pregnancy, but he's not wrathful or malicious. You might say he was a perfect gentleman. You might be tempted to think ill of Joseph because he even considered a divorce, but I would rather you recognize here something of the nobility of his character. The nobility of character possessed by our Savior's adopted father. Boys, he is the kind of man, I would argue this. He is the kind of man that you boys ought to aspire to be like. He was just and righteous. He was patient, self-controlled, considerate. He was held captive by the Word of God and not by his feelings, whatever they might have been. He's the kind of man we fathers should be scouting out for our daughters. And if any of you single sisters wish to be married, well, I would say look for a man like Joseph one who seeks to live according to a right application of God's revealed will, and as we shall see, one who is willing to be corrected. that brings us to verse 20, where we've considered how um, Mary's drama proves we need God's personal involvement, but now we see how Joseph's dream explains God's personal involvement in our sins, in, in saving us from our sins. There's two parts to Joseph's stream here, verses 20 through 23. We see an angelic clarification, and then we see a prophetic connection. First the angelic clarification, but when he had considered this, literally, when he had considered these things, the situation, what options he had, what route he was going to follow, behold, it's a lovely word, the word behold, usually in Scripture, behold interrupts everything. Because God shows up with a message. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The problem with Joseph's plan, and there was a problem with it, it wasn't sin, it was ignorance. He simply lacked the whole picture. And so God sends His messenger, the angel of the Lord, to this noble son of David, this righteous man, to clarify matters for him, to lead him down a better course of action, a more informed course of action. And as the divinely appointed heir to David's dynasty, Joseph would be the earthly father of the Messiah. Not that he begat the Messiah, no, this is a virgin conception and birth but he would adopt Jesus as his own son, as legal heir to all the rights and privileges of this son of David. The first part of the angel's clarifying message encourages Joseph to follow through on his original, and we should actually assume here his preferred plan, to take Mary into his house as his wife. As soon as Joseph began to consider the divorce... Literally, it says, when he had considered this, the angel appears to him and talks him back from the ledge, doesn't he? He says, No, don't cast her out, don't divorce her, but bring her in. He says, Do not fear. um, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, to bring her into your house, for that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. The second part of the angel's clarifying message is a most precious statement, verse 21. We've already spoken about it several times this evening. In this verse, the angel of the Lord gives and explains the name of our Savior, the name of Jesus. And he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is his office. This is his calling. This is his task. He himself, the Greek says, he himself will save his people from their sins. What is it that a couple weeks ago uh, in the introductory series to this gospel, what, what is it that was the cry of the ancient Israelite heart from Psalm 130, verse 8? Well, let's start at verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities or sins. Jesus is the answer, the fulfillment of that promise from Psalm 130, verse 8. What a name! Are you weary and heavy laden? This Jesus will say, come to me. Come to Jesus. For He Himself shall save His people from their sin. Not in their sin, but from their sin. What do I mean by that? He will overthrow the power of it. He will expunge the record of it. He will deliver you from the presence of it around you. He will raise you up at the last day, reversing all the consequences of it. Nothing of your sin will enter heaven behind you, for Jesus will obliterate it all. He himself will save you from his sin. What a glorious promise. This is the gospel message. Jocelyn and I were, Mrs. Groff and I were discussing how back when we were happy, clappy, evangelies, We said the name Jesus a lot, but rarely ever said Christ. And then we became reformed. And we say Christ a lot. But to our great shame, perhaps we don't think on the name of Jesus quite as much. My friends, is the name of Jesus precious to you? Could you meditate on it all the night long? Solomon's wife in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3, says of his name, Your name is like purified oil, and so should the name of Jesus be for every believer. We ought to delight in it, take great joy in it. How can you despise or or feel nothing at the mention of Jesus' name? Oh, how could you take it in vain? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but more to the point, is He your Savior? Is He your salvation? Do you know Him as the personal expression of God's goodness, mercy, love, and involvement in your life? Do you trust Him to save you? If you do, then His name will be a heavenly refreshment, a delight to your very soul. And if you delight in His name, then you must forsake all. All your sin, all identity with it, all sympathy for it. My friends, I make this point, I drill down on this point, because this is a great, there is great confusion about this, even in our denomination today. If you claim the name of Jesus, if it brings delight to your soul, if you recognize in it the name of your Savior, how then could you identify with that which He saves you from? Namely, your sin, your iniquities, those rotten affections stirring up temptation in your heart. You can't carry any of that into heaven. And so there we see the angelic clarification for Joseph. But then in verses 22 and 23 we see a prophetic connection that's made here. Verse 22 brings in this prophetic connection, it introduces a second name for the Messiah. Not only is He Jesus our Savior, but He is Emmanuel, He is God with us. Whether this prophetic connection, this citation of Isaiah 7.14 is is part of the angel's discourse or revelation to Joseph, or it's a, a commentary like an apologetic inserted by Matthew, whatever it is, is ultimately unimportant. The fact is, it's here. It's part of this message to Joseph. It's set right here in the context of this extraordinary revelation. The important fact is that this prophetic connection supports what the angel told Joseph in verses 20 and 21. Matthew will frequently use this formula of, um, in verse... 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew's going to say this a bunch in his gospel, which means a lot of work for the preacher to make that connection clear and plain in its significance with the Old Testament. In fact, in the next two chapters, he's going to use it five times, describing the, the infancy and childhood of Jesus Christ, even into uh, his baptism. Verse 23 references Isaiah chapter 7, which we read. And as I described at that point, wicked Ahaz denies God's offer to grant him a sign of deliverance. It's a, it's, a show, it's a false show of piety. And so God then responds by condemning the house of David in verse 13, and then prophesying a great divine gift in verse 14, Emmanuel, from a virgin mother rather than from the physical line of David. That is really the point that's, bringing, that's being brought home here. Yes, This Emmanuel will have legal rights to David's everlasting throne. He's set within the genealogy, in the royal line. But God himself will deliver this promised Emmanuel to his people. He will rightfully occupy David's throne, but God is the one who put him there. That's the significance of the insertion of this prophecy uh, being indicated as fulfilled here in this dream with Joseph. So verse 21 establishes the full humanity of Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 23 then establishes the full deity of the Messiah as God with us. This seed of the woman without an earthly physical father was prophesied in Genesis 3.16 when God says to the serpent, I shall set enmity between uh, your seed and her seed. And He will crush your head, and you will bruise His heel. The proto-gospel, the proto-evangelion. And then it's elaborated in Isaiah 7.14, in that it shows that when the seed of the woman comes, the seed of the virgin, the offspring of the virgin's womb comes, He comes to reverse the curse of separation between God and man. He is God with us. You are here this evening in a worship service intended as an offering to God Most High. And He is with us even now by the ever-present Spirit of Christ. As the prophet Isaiah keenly felt, this God is a holy God, and we must be holy before Him lest we perish. As an expression of love and of His unstoppable grace and His purpose and salvation, God sent forth His Son, very God of very God, to save sinners, Jesus. To cleanse the defiled, to present them to the Father as a holy people, a sanctified people, and a living church. And why? Why? To be God with us. That we might be with Him. We see here, arrayed for us in these two names, God's personal involvement in our salvation. It's here explained as Jesus, Savior, God saves, and Emmanuel, God with us, demanding our holiness even as He ensures our sanctification and salvation. And that brings us now to the third heading as we consider God's personal involvement. We've seen that Mary's drama proves God's personal involvement in our salvation. Joseph's dream explains God's personal involvement in our salvation. And now Jesus' delivery confirms God's personal involvement in our salvation. Verses 24 and 25. We see Joseph awoke from his sleep And did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. We see here in verse 24, Joseph's faithful compliance with all that the angel instructed him to do. What Joseph thought as he woke up from that that dream is left to our imagination. We really have no idea what, what he thought. But we do know what he did because that's what Matthew tells us. Joseph took the angel's message as a divine commission. He took it as the very Word of God. Remember, this is a righteous man. He was going to follow the Word of God handed down to him in Deuteronomy chapter 20, wasn't he? In 22 and 24. And now here, he's going to follow the Word of God extraordinarily granted to him in a dream. And he's going to follow it down to the letter. What does he do? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. This is what holiness of life looks like. Immediate, complete, and joyful obedience without any grumbling or delay. Well, how do I know this was joyful? Again, I think this is what Joseph wanted to do. I think he wanted to bring Mary into his home. Obviously, he was betrothed to her. He would have been dismayed and confused about her being pregnant. Surely, perhaps, she didn't even tell him what the angel Gabriel communicates to her in Luke chapter 1 because How's he going to believe that? She just trusts the Lord to make it known to her husband, and the Lord does. And Joseph now can immediately, completely, and joyfully obey without any grumbling or delay. Children, take notes. Brothers and sisters of any age, take notes. Consider that Joseph needed extraordinary revelation. He needed it in order to correct his reasonable and righteous application of God's law, previous. Such is not the case for us today. Why do I say that? Well, to correct any kind of charismatic leanings, Joseph confronted something utterly unique in his life. A once-in-human-history event. Direct intervention of God into uh, human history. And he needed extraordinary revelation to make it plain to him what it was he was supposed to do in that situation. The important thing to note here is his prompt and obedient response to God's personal involvement in his life. And are we that quick, are we that prompt and and, uh, immediately obedient when God in his word, be it read or preached, confronts us with a change of action, a change of course which we need to take? And then verse 25 follows up on Joseph's faithful compliance with Mary's holy condition. It's not a throwaway detail. This is integral to the purpose of this passage. But he, Joseph, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to her firstborn son. I prefer that textual basis. The King James, and New King James should have that. And he called his name Jesus. Notice Joseph's the one that names the boy. Joseph names him Jesus according to what the angel told him. Usually, you know, the homecoming of a wife into, a husband's, into her betrothed husband's household would involve the consummation of marriage and marital relations. And the text of Scripture is careful to tell us that Joseph and Mary did not do that. They did not consummate their marriage in this way at this time. Lest there be any doubt at all about the paternity of Jesus, Matthew clears the matter here. Joseph is not the biological father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He simply could not have been. He did not know Mary before Jesus was conceived. No man begat Jesus the Messiah. He was born of a virgin. And this is an essential doctrine that cannot be compromised. You throw that out. You throw everything out right with it. There's nothing unholy about a husband and a wife coming together as husband and wife. However, Joseph maintained the sanctity of the virgin's womb Because he understood the importance of the prophetic connection present in verse 23. Whether the angel declared it to him in the dream, or he made that connection on his own, and Matthew inserted the commentary here, Joseph knew that the virgin shall be with child, and the virgin shall bear a son. And so, he, as a faithful steward and servant of the mysteries of God, keeps her a virgin. Now, there's no reason to believe that Joseph and Mary abstained from marital relations after Jesus was born. I think that in Matthew chapter 12, the, the brothers there described are not distant relatives of Jesus coming with Mary to, to, to call him back from doing what he's doing. I think they're actually his biological brothers as Mary and Joseph would have been husband and wife in the normal way and, and, and she would have bore children to Joseph. But, to be frank... The text really is not concerned to give us any of that detail. It just doesn't really matter one way or another what their practice was after the birth of Christ. The point here is that Jesus was born of a virgin. He is our Savior and He is God with us. Though Joseph did not beget Jesus, he did adopt Him as His own son, as His legal heir, and as the beloved firstborn of His wife. And we see that here in that He called His name Jesus. He names the boy. The love of Joseph for Jesus and Mary will be a grand and inspiring theme of the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel. A theme that will lead generations of Christians to lead the way in adopting the outcast, the forlorn, and even um, the, the disfigured who are left abandoned to die. And Matthew commends Joseph's example to us. whether or not you've adopted children, I will ask you this. Have you adopted Jesus, not as a son, but as Savior? Have you adopted Christ as your Savior? Do you love him as the Savior, as the King, as the presence of God with us, as the glory of the gospel? If you take several metals, cast iron, steel, copper, gold, silver, bronze, and and you put them under a microscope one at a time in a series, you'll be amazed by the sharp differences between them. They might all kind of look the same, albeit different colors, to the naked eye, but when you put them under a microscope, the structures under close inspection are, are beautiful and intricate and unique. And and of course, each metal then has some special use, some for cookware, some for coinage, some for construction, maybe some for advanced printed circuit boards or whatever. But tonight, we haven't put metal under a microscope. Rather, Matthew in his Gospel has taken Christ's royal lineage, which quite frankly, looks very similar to many other royal lines as they're traced through human history to the naked eye. But then he puts it under the microscope for us at its most important point, the birth of Christ. If verses 1 to 17 describe for us God's purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin, verses 18 to 25 prove to us that Jesus, this Jesus, is utterly unique from all other men in that he alone has come to accomplish God's purpose. No other king of power in heaven or on earth can accomplish the salvation we so desperately need, the salvation from sin. Only God come down, God with us, can cleanse you of the defilement of sin, liberate you from the power of sin, and perfect you in holiness. And in Christ Jesus God has come down to us. God himself. In Christ Jesus, God himself dwells with us and reverses the curse of separation. Through historical drama and supernatural revelation, Christ's virgin birth reveals God's personal involvement in our salvation. Through historical drama and supernatural revelation, Christ's virgin birth reveals God's personal involvement in our salvation. We've seen how Mary's drama uh, shows the need or proves the need for God's personal involvement in our salvation. We've seen how Joseph's dream explains God's personal involvement in our salvation. And then how Jesus' delivery then proves or confirms God's personal involvement in our salvation. And some questions posed to us now here as we wrap up. Do you consider yourself virtuous, strong, or independent? Certainly, you're not more virtuous than the Mother Mary. Whatever your commendations, whatever your abilities, whatever your safeguards, it all can come crashing down in an instant. We see that in the drama of Mary's life. And in those moments of high drama in your life, It is then that we are to recognize God's hand. He may be chastening you, sure, or he may be accomplishing another purpose entirely. It's for no man, really, to say. God alone knows his secret purposes. But it is in those moments that our cries for help, that our cries for redemption from the depths, are to be the most fervent and most frequent It is in these moments, then, that the sweet reminder of God's special purpose in sending His Son, in sending Jesus, His salvation, is especially comforting to our souls. God sent Jesus to do what? I never tire of saying it, to save His people from their sins. And why can this Jesus do this? Because He is God incarnate. Where the heaven-born king goes, there his heavenly kingdom follows. Another grand theme of this gospel. Where he is, God is. My friends, the Christian faith hinges on a sincere and steadfast conviction that God's word is true. Christ Jesus, the King, he who was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he who is fully God and fully man, has come to save. Do you believe this? You must believe this in order to be saved. There is no salvation apart from believing in Christ as He is presented in Scripture. And that Christ is virgin born. That Christ is utterly holy, for God is holy. And mysteriously, as demonstrated to us in this greatest of mysteries in the Incarnation, this holy God is personally involved